Friedrich Nietzsche once quipped, there are no facts, only interpretations. What Nietzsche's saying is that there's no such thing as reality. We all make our own reality. Reality is what's in our minds. And the logical extension of that line of thinking is that there's no ultimate right or wrong. Right or wrong is determined by the individual. There's no moral law in the universe. For Nietzsche and those like him, the individual determines his or her own reality. That sounds sweet, but it's insanity. It's either raining outside right now or it's not. It's either Sunday morning right here, right now, or it's not. We're either in the month of November right here and right now, or we are not. As we sit here this morning, it is a Sunday morning. It's sunny outside in the month of November. If someone listens to this lesson later on the internet or on CD somewhere, it may be a Monday rainy afternoon in December. But it's not both a Monday rainy afternoon in December and a sunny Sunday morning in November at the same time and in the same sense. The individual does not get to choose reality. Reality is what really is. There is something that can be chosen, and that's our perspective on reality. We can choose our own perspective, but reality is a fixed point. Let me see if I can illustrate this with the story of the, one of the great Viennese psychiatrists in the early 1900s, pre-World War II, a man named Viktor Frankl. Most of you have heard of Dr. Frankl. He was a neurologist as well as a psychiatrist who specialized in suicide prevention primarily among females prior to World War II. On September 25th, 1942, he and his wife and his parents were all arrested and deported to a concentration camp in what later would be the Czech Republic. His crime, the reason he was arrested and deported, was that he was Jewish. Over the next three years, Dr. Frankel, separated from his wife and his parents, was transferred first to Auschwitz and then to Dachau. Those are names that live on in infamy in terms of man's inhumanity to man. He was liberated on April 27, 1945, by American forces. At that time, he was a thin and frail skeleton of his former self. Neither his wife nor his parents made it through the camps. He was alone, very much alone, except for a sister, a younger sister, who had been escorted out of Austria right before World War II and escaped. A few months later, after he escaped Dachau, after he was liberated by the Americans there and had regained his strength, Frankel sat down to write what would become a classic work. The title of the book was Man's Search for Meaning. I read this book some years ago, and I cannot say that it's good bedtime reading. It's chilling bedtime reading because he tells what happened in those concentration camps. Let me stop here and tell a side story. I was in, several years ago, I was in the airport in Denver, and I was having a very wonderful conversation with this very nice, seemingly rational lady. And then all of a sudden during the conversation, she says, well, you know, the Holocaust never happened. And I said, you got to be kidding me. Why would you say something like that? There are survivors of the Holocaust. I, and I just read Frankel's book about the Holocaust. And some of the things that had, had been taking place, I said, you know, you lost all credibility with me. Everything you've said before now has lost a little bit of credibility when you say something like that. 
Victor Frankl and others have chronicled what happened in the Holocaust. And Sir Martin Gilbert, one of the best books that's ever been written, he was known as Winston Churchill's biographer, one of the best books that's ever been written on the Holocaust, 700 pages documenting it all right straight through. I'm glad we still have eyewitnesses because sometimes people can change the reality, they think. No, the reality was the Holocaust happened. You can't wipe it away by saying that it didn't. Anyway, back to Frankel. You can't sleep immediately after reading Man's Search for Meaning. It's a very, very heavy book, and some of the stories in it that I won't go into today are just bone-chilling. Dr. Frankel reported the reality of the death camps, what happened at the death camps. But at the same time, he noted the different perspectives that people that went through it had. Some had a survivalist perspective, and a lot of them made it through. Some had a perspective where they were going to give up. They thought life had no, more, no longer had any meaning whatsoever, and a lot of those did not make it through. And some of the people who had a survivalist perspective didn't make it through either. But what he's saying is they all were in the same reality. But many of them chose to look at that reality with a different perspective. Frankel never denied the reality of the suffering that was taking place. That's not how we get through suffering. You're not going to get through the suffering of your husband or your wife having cancer by acting like it's not there or your mom or your dad having a, a health problem, perhaps being on their deathbed and pretending that they're not there. That, that is not helpful. There is a reality, but we can have a perspective on that reality. So Frankl never denied the reality of the suffering that took place there. To deny that would have done neither him or anybody else any good at all. But he did observe individuals choosing their own perspectives on the reality, and that's where this intersects with Christianity. And he concluded, famous line from that book, the last of the human freedoms is the right to choose one's own attitude in whatever circumstance they find themselves. Now the circumstance they find themselves is reality. The perspective is their attitude in that reality. There's reality, and then there's perspective. The closer your perspective on reality is to the way reality really is, the more healthy you are mentally, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. In our passage today, we find Paul challenging the Corinthians as to how they regard reality or their perspective on reality, first when it comes to themselves and then when it comes to others. His point will be that only God is in a position to have all the facts about reality, what's really going on in people's life. Only God is in that position. We acknowledge that reality exists. But since we don't have all the facts, Paul will say, our evaluation both of ourselves and of others will never be as accurate as God's perspective will be. By way of application, then, I hope that we can see it without me saying it. We should exercise extreme caution when evaluating others and even ourselves. This is not to say that we're not to evaluate other people. Sometimes we have to. There are times when we must. The oft-quoted verse, judge not that you be not judged, must be taken within its context. There are times when we must evaluate the actions of others and even our own situation. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. 
Later in this very same letter, Paul's going to come down hard on the Corinthians for not evaluating a situation, for not looking at the reality of a, of a very horrible situation in Corinth and not acting on it. So I'm in no way saying that we don't evaluate. What Paul is saying here is not that we don't evaluate, but that we need to be very careful because we don't have all the facts. Only God has all the facts, particularly when it comes to someone's spiritual life. We need to be very, very careful. There's an unfortunate chapter break in between 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'd invite you to turn there now toward the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know the chapter breaks and the versation actually were not part of the original text. And it, there probably should not be a chapter break at, at chapter 4 verse 1. The chapter break probably should have come at verse 6. But nevertheless, we'll cover this morning chapter 3 verse 18 through chapter 4 verse 5. The theme of perspective runs the gamut in these two paragraphs. It goes through this chapter break. In this section, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 5, Paul rehashes two themes that he's developed quite well already earlier in this epistle. And each of, the, of these re rehashing begins with a personal command. In chapter 3, verse 18, let no one be deceived. It could also be understood, let no man deceive himself. That's 3.18. Then if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, let a man, or each one, regard us in this manner. So first Paul is going to talk about having a proper understanding, a proper perspective on ourself. And then he's going to speak about having a proper perspective on others. But as we study this, remember his overarching theme is, the overarching application is, be careful. Be careful when you begin to evaluate the spiritual lives of other people. Again, we have to do it sometimes. Being someone who's in a position of leadership, there have been times that I've had to do it here. I've had to ask certain people to, to leave our church because they were involved in a certain behavior that just was totally unacceptable. It was their choice to stay or to go if they would have changed the behavior, but and that's a painful thing for me to do. Because even then, when I think I have a lot of facts, I don't have all the facts, but I have to act on what I do have. All Paul's saying is be really, really careful. Keep this in mind, too. Remember, the Corinthians were very judgmental about the Apostle Paul. So this is really, he's really talking about himself and Apollos, and in, in some sense, Timothy here, too. So we have those two initial commands. Let no man be deceived, or let no one deceive himself, and let each one regard us in this manner. Read with me chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. That was part of our scripture reading this morning. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no man boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether a Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. We'll unpack what that means. Then in verse 23, and you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Again, it opens, let no one deceive himself. It's one thing to be fooled by others. I've been fooled by others. You have too. But it's far worse to fool yourself. It's worse because it can be so easily avoided. Here the idea of fooling oneself is that anyone who continues to pursue the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the philosophers and the sophists, 
thinking that it is superior to the wisdom of God, is fooling himself and hurting the church. This is something that he brought up in chapter 1, and he's been developing it all the way up until now. There was this wisdom, and I'll put quotes around that, air quotes, there was this wisdom that the Corinthians had, and it came from the gathering of the philosophers. And they were all impressed with that. That was the culture. You know, today, if we had a professional football player come in and sit on the back row and somebody knew that he was here and everybody recognized who it was, there'd be a lot of whispering, look at, look at that guy over there, look and see who's here. In Corinth, if they would have had one of the philosophers come into the church service, everybody said, well, look at that guy over there, do you see who's here? He's one of the philosophers, he's one of the sophists. And Paul comes in, he's not apparently a skilled speaker I think he was probably pretty good, but the Corinthians weren't impressed with him at all. And so the Corinthians were very critical of Paul in his speaking ability and this simple message that he had. The simple message of a crucified Messiah that died in our place. His message was so simple it didn't make sense to the intellectual elite. The simple message that we're all born with a problem. Every one of us is is born with a sin problem. And every one of us commits personal sins over the course of our lives that bring us short of the glory of God. And Paul comes in and says, listen, God solved this sin problem for you. They say, well, how did he solve it? Paul says he solved it through his son. The Jews in the crowd said, wait a minute, what do you mean he solved it through his son? And Paul says, yes, the Messiah was crucified for you. The Messiah paid all the sins, paid the penalty for all the sins that have ever been committed on that cross as he suffered. And he paid that price for you personally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Paul's simple message straight from God was, listen, you had a sin problem. Jesus Christ dealt with that sin problem. And in order to receive the benefits of his death, You need to go to God in simple faith. Just like that Philippian jailer did so long ago when the Apostle Paul was asked, what do I need to do to be saved? He answered that jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now today, in many of our churches, that would have been answered differently and it's a travesty. They would have said, well, join our church. Come give some money to our church. Help us build that building. Get rid of alcohol Throw out the drugs, and you will be saved. A few years ago, I was in Poland. Actually, it's about six years ago now. I was in Poland, and one of the opportunities I had there was to just preach in front of a group of men, primarily men, who were alcohol abusers and drug abusers. The guy that got up before me was speaking in Polish, but an interpreter was whispering in my ear what he was saying. And he was saying, in order to be saved, you men need to give up that alcohol, and you need to give up those drugs. And the women who were sitting next to the men, their spouses, were all amening that. And I understand in a certain way why. Because the alcohol and the drugs were making them abusive husbands. But I knew that's not right. The Bible never says in order to be saved you've got to be a better person. How good do you have to be to be as good as God? You've got to be perfect. And all of us have fallen short of that. The Bible never says that we have to achieve for perfection on our own. In fact, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift. And that's the message Paul came with. He came to these intellectual Corinthians with a simple message. And that is that all the wisdom of of philosophy in the world is not going to get you any closer to God. 
it's, it's, not, it's not a bad study. I think we need more Christians studying philosophy so that we can interact with people that are out there on the college campuses and other places. But the thing that's going to get you to heaven is recognizing you have a need that you can't meet, Paul says. And to trust Christ, to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. And that's simple. The message is still ridiculed in some circles today. They say they can't, that's too easy, people say. You know what I tell them? You're right. You're right. It is too easy. If I was God, I'd have made it a lot harder. But I'm not God. You better be thankful. He's perfect, and he had the perfect plan. Because, you see, in this plan, he gets all the glory. I don't get any. I can't go waving a flag saying, I trusted Christ. I'm a great person. If I wave a flag, I should say, I trusted Christ. He's a great person. That's why worship is all about him and not about us. That's where we need to ground ourselves. And that's the message that Paul preached. They thought it was foolishness. And Paul's saying, no, as long as you're going to stay with this idea that the wisdom of the philosophers down there on the street that leads to Athens, that meets every Thursday morning at at, at 8 o'clock and talks philosophy, if if that's the wisdom that you think is really going to help you, you're foolish. They think that we're foolish. They're the ones that are foolish, God is telling them. That's why he says, let no man deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may be wise. Now that goes all the way back to chapter 1. In other words, let him accept God's wisdom, which Paul almost sarcastically calls foolishness. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. You see, in the first chapter... Paul's point was was that God's wisdom is foolishness to the philosophers. And now Paul says, hold on just a second, guess what? Your your wisdom is foolishness before God. God doesn't think a whole lot of your wisdom. Remember we're talking about perspective now. They had the wrong perspective on reality. The reality was that that kind of philosophy wasn't going to get them to heaven. I've read Aristotle. I mean, he's a smart guy, a brilliant guy. But if you read Aristotle, you're not going to get to heaven. There's not enough there. So that's Paul's simple message. In verse 20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they're useless. Now, I don't know how much more clear he can say this. Now, the message is is extremely wise, but other people may not look at it that way. So then let no man boast in men, for all things belong to you. What he's saying is keep a proper perspective on yourself. There's something you do need to evaluate about yourself, and the reality is that God exists that we had a sin problem, that Jesus Christ solved it, and we can be rightly related to God by grace through faith. Simple faith. That's the reality, and that's the perspective that he wanted them to have on reality. Instead, they were arguing and fussing and fighting. First they said that the philosophers were A number one. We want to go with them. And pull that into Christianity, and Paul said, that's not the message. Then they want to say, well, if, if that's the case, well, I like Paul over Apollos. And other people say, well, I like Apollos' message a lot better than I do Paul's. In fact, if Paul is going to be preaching that day, I'm not coming. That was their view. And Paul condemns that view. As long as they're both speaking for God. They both have their own role. And then he says something that is absolutely incredible. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. Wait a minute, they must have said. Remember what, what they were arguing in the first chapter? Well, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. 
well, I'm of Cephas. And Paul turns the whole thing around and says, your perspective is wrong on the reality. He said, you know what the reality is? The reality is I belong to you, Corinthians. You don't belong to me. Apollos belongs to you. Cephas belongs to you. And that's a pretty big difference. The church is not the property of the apostles. The apostles are ministers of the church. The apostles belong to the church, not vice versa. There are ramifications to that truth that Paul's going to unpack later in the letter, but for right now, the basic principle is they should not be arguing that one belongs to Paul and another belongs to Apollos. Paul and Apollos belong to them. And it's the same way with pastors in this aspect, in this period of the church age. The church doesn't belong to me. I belong to you. Now with that comes a certain freedom, but with it also comes a certain responsibility. Paul's going to talk about that later. But this whole idea, listen, I'm going with Paul. I'm going with Apollos. It's condemned, and Paul says, you've got the wrong perspective. The perspective is that I belong to you. You don't belong to me. I'm here to serve you. And it's a totally different perspective, isn't it? And hopefully it's not a perspective that would say, well, then therefore I'm going to abuse you, Paul. It's a perspective that would say, okay, Paul was sent here to minister to me by God. I probably ought to give him a hearing. I probably ought to treat him right. Give him a place to stay if he needs one. Feed him if he needs to be fed. It takes away all the stress in the room. They should not be arguing that one belongs to Paul and another belongs to Apollos. Paul and Apollos belong to them. The Christian possesses all things. It goes on to say, whether all things in the world or life or death or things present or things to come, we're the possessor of all things. But not because of us. Because we belong to Christ. Once we have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, simple faith, then we belong to Jesus Christ. But then the text says, Christ belongs to God. But the reason we can say all this is ours is because it's all Christ and we're part of a body. We're part of Christ's body. You see how Paul's starting to weave this argument? He's sick and tired of this fussing and fighting that's going on in Corinth. And he's trying to tell them, you guys need to take a time out and get a different perspective on things. It's like that song that Johnny Cash sang so long ago, one of my favorites from my childhood, A Boy Named Sue. Remember when he fought his father and they, got, and they said, I came away with a different point of view. Well, that's what he wants them to do. He wants them to come away with this thing, a different point of view, and realize that you don't attach yourself to a human being if his name is not Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was sent there by Jesus Christ to minister for him. And we have the possession of all this because we are Christ's. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Hence, we belong to God. Paul did not die for the Corinthians. Jesus Christ did. That is the reality. Their perspective should reflect the reality. That's all Paul is saying here. He said, let's just look at this through a clean window, not through a distorted window. I remember back when I was 
younger, we liked to go to a place in California called Knott's Berry Farm. Some of you might have been there. It was, it was kind of Disneyland in Knott's Berry Farm, the two places that you visited. And I'll never forget, they had this room that was all distorted. It looked like you were walking on a, something that wasn't level, but it was actually level. They would have these mirrors that would make you look either real tall or real wide, one or the other. But that's a distortion. That wasn't a reflection of the reality. Paul just said, listen, let's get a good mirror. Later he's going to talk about the mirror of the Word of God. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. Then everything's going to be okay. So he's going to be saying, he's going to say here, let's take a look at how we view ourselves. But that's not all. In the first five verses of chapter 4, we need to consider how we view others. When it came to the view of themselves... They'll be truly wise only when they conform to God's thinking, which they weren't doing. And they were part of God's family. Paul was sent to minister to them. They don't have to align themselves with Paul. They should align themselves with Christ. That's what he wants them to have as far as their perspective on themselves. But how should they evaluate Paul? That's the subject of verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. And I'm going to give you the answer in real simple terms. With caution. They should evaluate Paul with caution. Verses 1 through 5 let a man regard us in this manner. He's talking about his ministry team. The focus is really upon himself here, though. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What Paul's saying is here, you don't have all the facts. I don't have all the facts about you. You don't have all the facts about me. There's only one that has all the facts. And far too many Christian circles today, the evaluation of other people's lives has become like a second sport. It's competition to see who can do it the best. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, be careful. Be careful when you start evaluating the lives of other people. He even mentions the, the motives of men's hearts. And we may say silly things sometimes. I know what you were thinking. Do you? You know the way people know what you were thinking? You and God. And sometimes it's only God. Because <laughs> if it's 15, 20 minutes down the road, we forgot what we were thinking at that particular time. <laughs> Let a man regard us in this manner. He goes back to, that's why I say that's an unfortunate chapter break. He's, it's the same thing. This is what should be your perspective on me. I'm a servant. I'm not here to build myself up. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. I've devoted my life to it, Paul's saying. I think most of us could say that. We've devoted our lives to serving Jesus Christ. He saved us. So we devote ourselves to him, not to pay him back for our salvation. We can never do that. But to say thank you, if nothing else. And that's what Paul's saying here. This is what your perspective should be of me, that I'm a servant I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I've been given this information. I'm a steward of it. And I have a responsibility to present it to you. Same way with pastors today. 
if a pastor has been trained and a pastor has, has studied, a pastor has a responsibility to, to do something with what he's been given, to present it to other people in love and in kindness as often as the opportunity arises. Till the Lord says, that's enough. You're not going to do it anymore. I'm taking you home. Let somebody else present it for a while. And the Lord will raise up somebody else to show people that it's not the messenger. It's the one about whom is being preached. It's Jesus Christ. I think that's why he gives people a certain amount of time and then that's it. He takes them home or he moves them off somewhere else. So that people don't get too dependent upon an individual if his name is not Jesus. That's who we should be dependent upon. That's who should be on the top shelf. Not any presenter of the word. In this case, moreover, he says in verse 2, it is required of students that one be found trustworthy. He says, I know what my job is. They're criticizing him. And this is one of those places where Paul gets a little testy. He's saying, you're evaluating me. I know very well what my job is. I know better than you do what my job is. And my job is to be faithful. To be trustworthy in the task that God gave me, no matter what your evaluation of me is. Can you imagine being one of those 20, 30 people in Corinth? I, I would imagine that was the size of the church. I wouldn't think much bigger because they met in the house. 20, 30, maybe 40 people. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul comes and preaches to you, and that's not good enough? You're going to argue that I like Apollos better? Or look at it this way Apollos comes and preaches to you? And you're one of those people, of course, I don't like him too much. don't like his jokes. I don't, I don't like the way he stands up there. I don't like the way he curls his hair. I think it should be straight. Listen, you, you, you have a wrong perspective. Your view of reality is really distorted. We're servants. We have to be trustworthy. So he's being tested. I know what my job is, he's saying. And then he goes on in verse 3. But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you. This is Paul at his best. He's really pulled out a really big club here, and they probably don't even know it. He said, it's not a really big thing for me to be examined by you. In other words, he's saying, I could care less about your examination of me. He's not trying to be me because he's the one that says we need to speak the truth in love. But sometime, part of love is telling them like it is. And he's telling them like it is here. It's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. Because he knows he's going to be evaluated someday by a perfect judge, by Jesus Christ, who does have all the facts. They don't have all the facts. They probably have 10% at the most. So he's not really interested in any human being's evaluation of him. Now, I know a lot of people say that. I don't care what they think. Sure we do. Most of the time, we really do. We want to be thought of well by other people, particularly people that we minister to. But I think Paul was in all honesty saying... Your evaluation does not mean nearly to me what God's evaluation means. And then he even says, I don't even examine myself. When people are really, really, really busy doing God's work, they don't have a lot of time to sit around and keep score. They figure God's going to keep score. You don't have to keep score as a Christian. God has a perfect scorebook. He's got it all written down. What you need to do is keep pressing forward. Not looking back on what you did yesterday for God. Look forward to what you're going to do today and tomorrow. Let him keep a tab because he's going to have a perfect tabulation of what's going on. We don't have to do that. So that's why I said I don't even examine myself, Paul says. The point is, if I don't examine myself and I have a lot more facts about me than you do, 
maybe you ought to cut me some slack. Maybe you ought to proceed with extreme caution in terms of evaluating me. And then he says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. You know, I don't know anything that particularly that needs to change, at least not, nothing I'm going to talk to you about, he's saying. Yet I am by this, not by this, acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. What he's saying, my evaluation is okay, but when compared to God's evaluation, it means nothing. It's God's evaluation that counts. We already have talked about in this context a couple of weeks ago before Dr. Leitner came about the judgment seat of Christ, that there will be a time when every single one of us stand before Jesus Christ himself and he evaluates our lives. Just thinking about that makes my pulse race. Because I don't know about you, but I know there's been a lot of wasted time in my life. In fact, that was the title of Malcolm Muggeridge's autobiography, Chronicles of Wasted Time. You see, he didn't become a Christian until he was way, way later in life. Most of his life, he lived not serving God at all. And he realizes some decades of his life he wasted. But at least he got it right at the end. And one day, Paul is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to evaluate him. I don't know what the evaluation is. I suspect I have a pretty decent idea. But only God knows how faithful Paul was with what he was given. Someday Billy Graham's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't know what Billy Graham's evaluation is going to be because I don't know what kind of stewardship he was given. It looks to me like he did a lot with what he was given. But that's between Billy Graham and the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be evaluated before the Lord. I don't know what your profession is or what you do, but let's, let's say you're a school teacher of elementary school children. Someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus Christ himself is going to evaluate what you did with what you were given. I wasn't given Billy Graham's giftedness at evangelism. I'm not going to be judged on, on an evaluation of Billy Graham. I'm going to be judged and evaluated what he gave me. You're going to be evaluated on what he gave you. You don't have to be a preacher or an evangelist to get a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. You have to be faithful with whatever he gave you to do. Because we're all going to be there. Nobody's going to get to skip this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be there and you'll be evaluated. Now, this doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. This is not that evaluation. That's a different one. This is for people who have trusted Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that human evaluation is myopic and it's inherently flawed. Paul is a servant of God. And only God can fully evaluate and accurately evaluate how well Paul did his job. And the same could be said of you. You're a servant of God. And in that elementary school classroom, are you doing your job as unto the Lord? When people see you, do they see Christ? Let's say you're a stay-at-home mom who works probably harder than any of the rest of us to go to work. How do you raise those kids? Do you raise them in such a way as that when they grow up, they love God? Or are you too busy watching as the world turns, if that's even still on? I don't know. Or complaining that you have to stay home and watch the kids. No. No higher calling in this life, I don't think, than, than being able to raise children to be a mother. Whether you're working or not. What kind of devotion, Dad, do you put into those kids? Do you give it everything? Or do you cheat on your taxes and then fuss at them for getting an F for cheating at school? We're all going to be evaluated. This is not just for Paul. That's my message today. This is not just for Paul. It's for you and me too. And God has all the facts. That should either 
make us thankful or scared, one or the other. And some of us have done a real good job at fooling others. Nobody's going to fool God. This is very serious. And then finally, therefore, his, his application, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Don't go on judging me. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light all things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, listen, I'll wait for the evaluation. I'm going to do my job as unto the Lord right now. I'm going to love you people, even though you people give me the hardest time of anybody that I've ever ministered to. The people in Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, they didn't give Paul nearly the trouble that the church in Corinth did. Not even close. But he said, I'm going to love you anyway, because that's what I was sent to do. He was going to do his job in spite of the fact that the people that he was doing it for, the beneficiary of his ministry, didn't particularly care for him. They gave him a real hard time, and Paul says, listen, that's your business. It's not mine. I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to minister to you anyway, and maybe one day you'll change. Only God is in a position to have all the facts on the reality of what's really going on in people's lives. We acknowledge that that reality exists, but since we don't have all the facts, our evaluations of both ourselves and of others will never be as accurate as God's perspective will be. Nietzsche was dead wrong. There are facts. There is an objective reality. Paul's point here is that since God alone has all the facts, the ultimate evaluation of both ourselves and of others is God's call. 